Here we are for another episode of the 212 podcast, a podcast that gives you an insight into the lives of people in the events, art and entertainment industry. Our next guest on the podcast is an Afrobeats legend. He started his career with another legend on Fela Kuti's Egypt 80 and then went on to perform and create a band with his son Femi Kuti called Positive Forced Band. This Nigerian-British musician fuses the balafon with the tones of a telephone and an equi to lift you from your ennui. Delhi Shosini, how are you and where are you today? Hello, I am fine, thank you, and I am here in the UK. So did you grow up, where are you, where are you at the moment? You're in London, aren't you? Yes, sir. Is that where you, is that where you grew up? Where, where, was your, where was your spot in London where you grew up? No, I didn't grow up in London at all. I grew up in Lagos, Nigeria. That's the why I was uh, favored and lucky to be able to meet up with Femi Kuti, meet up with his dad, you know, get to know them, get to be adopted like a, another member of the family. And um, yeah, I only, I only moved back to the UK in 19, uh, late 95, December 95. So how old were you when you came back to, when you, well, when you, when you came to London? I think I was about, oh, 95, that's about 33, 34, because now I've been here for 26 years, 26 from my 58 years, that's 30, 32, yeah, I was 32. Did you have like a, a something in your head where you were like, I need to go here for a certain reason, like, because Lagos, it sounds like you were doing pretty, <laughs> I mean, you were doing pretty well there. Yeah, we were, we were doing pretty well. Femi Kuti's band was doing pretty well. And I just, I had to come for an emergency situation because my, my wife was living here in the UK. She had been living in the UK for about a year and a half. You know, and I just got the call that, look, you need to come to town us on the next available flight. So I, I took off, came over. By the time I came over, after spending a bit of time, I just realized that, you know, there was no going back, you know, and uh, it was like, oh, you're going to have to start from scratch, you know. And I didn't grow up in so- the UK, so I hadn't built a farm base or anything. So I, I had to start from ground zero. What was the main thing that you started when you first came over? What did you, were you just playing like every night, like trying to get as many gigs as possible? Or did you get a record label? What was the kind of first thing that you, you you got into when you got over? The first thing I got into was like, I need to start playing. In fact, someone saw me and discovered me. And it was like, I saw you. You play with Vela Kuti in a, in a Glastonbury. Ah, you is a great man. Uh, some Portuguese, you know, American, he, the way he was saying it. And I was quite chuffed that, really? And then he said he was starting a band and that, he needed a keyboard player. I said, well, I'm sorry, I don't have a keyboard yet. So he said, don't worry, come to my flat. I'm, I'm living in the night floor. You come to my flat, I have a keyboard, I give you. He gave me a keyboard, one of those PSR, Yamaha PSRs, you know. And I started rehearsing with him. And then the next thing, he went back to Mozambique. And he left me with the keyboard, you know. And I just decided, I said, look, you know what? I got to make a decision. So I was actually going to go back to uni. I was going to, I started getting brochures from uni thinking what course 
what line should I actually pursue, you know, because I didn't feel I would be able to make an impact musically. And I just said to myself, you know, just get get a degree in something that will get you the, the qualifications to be able to provide for your the family and all that. So I started hunting for brochures and prospectus from different universities locally within where I was. And then suddenly, one of my very close friends invited me and said, you know, come, 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 um, uh, let's go and watch a concert. Let's go and watch um, Bucky Leo. And we went to Smolensky's on the Strand, which is, uh, it used to be one of the most popular um, live music venues in in the main focus where it's not underground. All their shows get advertised on Jazz FM and all that. So really accessible and all that. So we went and I was blown away. I was like, wow, he's doing a good job. And he was playing Afrobeat, you know, Afrobeat music mixed with a bit of um, his own identity and his own signature. That just convinced me that, look, if I had any doubts in myself that, look, whatever you do on, I mean, whatever you do with your abilities is a question of how long are you going to be able to persevere for? Because if you've got what it takes, it just has to be a question of right place, right time, right exposure, then it will make a difference. So I then decided that, okay, you know what? I'm going to have to find a way to keep this music going in me, but I must be able to survive first and foremost. I will survive and provide. So I got a job. I was working full-time, and then weekends, I started performing as a duo or trio. I had a workstation where I had semi-arranged packing tracks to perform, so I will play horn lines, I'll sing, or I'll be joined by a, trump, a trombone player or a saxophone player at most of the Nigerian restaurants in uh, the proximity of where I used to live, which was Northwest London. Then I got another one in Southeast London, then another one in Southeast London. So it worked out, I was playing every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know. And these are like, in local restaurants or local pubs as a duo trio kind of thing and before you know it you got word got around then there was a big review of one of my performances say fella resurrects in london you know and that curiosity made a lot of nigerians start to wonder okay let's go check him out you know and before you knew it word got around not just the Nigerian circuit, but within the circuit of underground music lovers that, oh, there's this ex-fella Kuti and Femme Kuti keyboard player who's who's around and he does all these covers of Fella's originals and a few of his own, you know, it's worth checking out. And that's how slowly I started to build a following. And then I started doing private functions. Oh, we're getting married. Can you do marriages? Oh, I'm I'm doing my 40th. Do you do birthdays? Oh, I'm doing my 70th for my dad. Do you do birthdays? You know, and then I started getting busier and busier and busier. Then the next thing I remembered what fella 
had that was his advantage. He he had a place to call home, his own venue, where he was playing 50 weeks a year. I started toying with the idea of getting a few friends to back me up or a few financiers to back me up. Let's let's get a venue, call it ours, and work on building that venue to be a multi multi arts venue, you know, multimedia arts venue where there'll be live music, there'll be other aspects of music and it could be open seven days a week. So we looked in I looked into it, uh, it wasn't man, it wasn't gonna be that easy. I then changed and I said, okay, let me check out all the venues in town, you know, and see which one will be most conducive to do something like a recreation of Fella Shrine in London. And then I found one was called the New Empowering Church. Approached him, was like, okay, this is the idea. And live music would be from midnight till 4 a.m. Four hour set, non-stop. DJ will be from 9 p.m. to 12 midnight. We tried the first one. It was awesome. It rocked. And that was the beginning of my underground series. And that really made a big difference to the growth of my band, as in by then I had really recruited a, a full uh, retinue of musicians where with, with depths, you know, I had the first call trumpet player, second call trumpet player, third call, the same with the saxophones, the drums, the bass, the guitars. So over time, what had gotten around the musician's world where people were like, ooh, uh, that guy, he's put up a band, his band is tight, you know, he's looking for a guitar player or he's looking for a depth uh, horn player, you know. What got around and people were looking forward to playing with me. Then before you knew it, I started teaching a lot teaching because I had to teach people to learn the music. And before you knew it, I started making a bigger impression on within the circuit such that I was invited to do master classes in some in some schools, community groups. And that also helped again, because then it was master classes on Afrobeat. How let's play Afrobeat. It could either be a day session where I would go in and I'll be like, okay, let's play Afrobeat with Dennis Hussini. And they would already have an ensemble of mixed brass, percussion, and drums and strings. And I'll go in there and the idea will be after spending maybe two days, so I'll go in on a Monday, go in on a Tuesday, go in on a Wednesday. On the Wednesday, in the evening on the Wednesday is when their parents would then come and come and watch them perform Afrobeat with members of the Delisosimi Afrobeat Orchestra. And, you know, so it's it's been a steady grind and a steady growth, not expecting miracles, but actually working hard to create the awareness that this is a serious genre. It's not just a happy, feel, go lucky. It's hard work, but it's work from the heart, you know, and, it's, a it's, it's also it's also kind of like it's it's huge now, and I I, I wonder you know you've got such a, a mad history in, of your musical 
kind of foray, but I wondered if you could take us to when it all changed for you, when you joined in with Felicuti's Egypt 80 and what that was like. Were you listening to that type of music and then you started playing with him and it was kind of a bit of a, a, a almost like pinch yourself moment or, or how did you get, how did you get bought into it? I was lucky because um, I was in high school with Fela's nephew. So Fela's big brother's first son, he was like a godfather to me, like a school father. You know, you have uh, mentees or mentors. You either mentor someone or you're a mentee to someone. He was one of those in that era that could play the piano. And he was a fellow motif specialist. I don't know if you know what a motif is, but oh, what's a ahead. motif? Yeah. Motif is like that's just a tenor guitar line, but it's known. I mean, within the, those who in the circuit and those who know about it, those who know know, they'll say, "Oh yeah, that's a fella motif." Or that's a fella motif. Or that's a fella That's a fella motif. That's a motif. That's a drum motif, you know. So all those kind of motifs. When we had um, a break time during school, we had a school piano. So we used to divide ourselves in the piano in the piano room and play fella motifs, put them all together, break them apart. So he was one of those who could separate the motifs and play them, put them together, and give everybody a role. So you hear, bing, 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 someone's playing that. Then someone's saying, bing, 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 So when those two are going together, bing, bing, then someone, yeah, then he may be the one who will be giving me one of those parts, giving somebody else the second part. Then he will go and play the third, like a melodious uh, overtone over it. So, I mean, whilst I was in high school, this was when I was 12, 13, 14, I had been listening to you know, and participating in jams where we're deciphering, analyzing, breaking down fellas' classics, you know, the early day classics, even um, colonial mentality, which is one of the most simplest of his, when you want to define it, the three notes. So someone's been needy done. That, that was, those two are interweaving within us. So you now have three patterns interweaving within themselves. And when you're 12 and you are exposed to that construction breakdown, you begin to wonder and begin to discover the mathematical aspect of 
the writing process. I mean, anyway, that's what happened to me. Then with all those three patterns going together, then you still have the same drums. That's the bass. Tony Allen drum pattern. You were like, wow. The hypnotic aspect of it, alone just makes you just i can listen to this all day long just keep me grounded and keep my head bopping you know so that was the initial first romance with it and then he now introduced me to femi kuti for that song but Delhi, with we the with the with the Felicuti stuff, like could, like for people that are listening that don't actually know just uh, how big he was like his funeral, there were millions of people there, weren't there? Yep. People came from all over the world to his burial. I was going to go, but I couldn't make it, sadly. But I was with him in spirit. I was with his family in spirit, and, uh, you know. He arguably is the biggest African artist. Yeah, he is. He's and the most influential. And you see, I get interviews like this where asking me, oh, how come there's a resurgence of Afrobeat? And I say to them, it's a resurgence to you because you're not in the real world. You live in the world where it's all about the headlines or the news headlines. If, if you're existing where the real people are, people who go to concerts that are not advertised in the spaces where if they're not advertised there, you don't know about it. Then for you, it's a resurgence. There's Afrobeat is in the underground. It's in the mainstream where people will meet up. People have all these parties where live music is going on till 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. in the morning, every weekend. So it's not advertised on radio. It's not advertised in the newspapers. The biggest news. It doesn't get reviewed in the Times Daily. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really get reviewed in the Guardian. It's not even in the social music or sort of social world music glossy magazines where they try to polish it up for consumption of the West. It's not in those magazines either. Maybe once in a while it gets reviewed. And then when it gets reviewed, probably in the back page one place, it's not as splashed on the front page. And we're so indoctrinated to read headlines so if it's not on the headlines then it's 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 um it's not in existence or it's not worth checking out was that a surprise to you when you moved um it wasn't a surprise to me at all because the only reason fella you really drew a lot of main media attention was because of his lifestyle and because of the um sensationalism of you know mostly for things that didn't relate to the music, i.e. he married 27 wives, i.e. he got uh, arrested on his way to East Italy with 48 point something kilos of weed in his, uh, you know, those were the things that brought the limelight, you know, and then they would then mention after the headline, uh, Afrobeat exponent arrested en route to tour Europe with 48 point something kilos. After that headline has been 
the sensation that will make people purchase the paper or want to read. Then the is that they'll say, okay, Afrobeat exponent, married 27 wives, the founder or creator of the general Afrobeat, blah, blah, blah. That's how, those were the kind of sensationalized headlines that really brought attention to Fela. And over the years, I had realized that sometimes that sensational, sensationalization is not necessary. People should focus on the actual real deal. Okay, the music is unique. Check the music. So now, me meeting uh, Fermi just made it that we just struck a chord immediately. It's like we became brothers. Well, my long lost brother. Uh, then the next thing he introduced me to Fella. And when he introduced me to Fella, you know, Fella knew me. I mean, he knew of my family and the tragedies that struck my family then. He showed so much empathy to me. I was quite impressed that, you know, despite all the negative headlines that we used to hear about him, this man was a true gentleman, you know, and before you knew it, I had started to frequent the shrine when he opened his new shrine, and then I used to watch, listen, I would go with Femi to some of his rehearsals, sit on the side, listen. One day I plucked up the courage to tell him, because I was still in high school with Femi, his son. And I plucked up the courage during one of the night sessions to ask him, could I sit in on this song? I've learned it, and I would love to sit in and take a solo. I said, are you sure? I was like, yeah. I said, okay, go on. Then that was the that was the busting of the dam. Once I had that first taste, I was like, no way. There's no way I'm missing any of these <laughs> nights anymore. So Fella played Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Tuesday, 50 weeks a year. That was the discipline with the band, Egypt 80. I was still in high school. I would, I would not miss a night. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Tuesday, for 50 weeks a year, I was there. So all throughout my high school, my last year in high school, especially, I was just, my mind was just on the music. I started deconstructing it myself, looking at the makeup of the music, how he would arrange his horn lines, how he would arrange the uh, sort of the play between uh, vocal motifs, horn motifs, and the main groove that has been put together with the drums, the uh, guitars, and the percussion instruments, you know, to analyze and understand that that process, you know. Before you know it, I was so desperate. I was like, when I wanted to join the band, because Femi then stopped high school and said, look, I'm joining my father's band full-time. I was jealous. I went to Bishop, I said, yeah, Fred, I, I would also like to join the band. And he looked at me and said, okay, as soon as you finish your high school, that's okay. Just finish your high school. Then I had about, say, four months left of a, a GCSE level high school. The day I finished my last exam, I ran from school to meet him. At home, he was sleeping. I was excitedly waiting, sitting in the living room, waiting for him. Well, I've finished high school now, so I can join the band. He said, oh, very good, very good. Okay, 
So what you've got to do now, you've got to spend the next two weeks working on your scales, working on your arpeggios, and just practicing all the songs you know, and then learning the ones you don't know, and you will you'll be on the payroll. Oh, two weeks. But in the meantime, you can still come. You can still come every day like you come. Every night we're playing, you can come and sit in like you always do. <laughs> Excuse me. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah. He must. Have, he must have been one of. He must have been one of your, like. I mean, just for what he did, not just in Nigeria, but just across the whole continent. It. it and world, but more specifically when he was there. like He must have been one of your idols growing up as well. Yeah, he definitely was. I used to look up to him a lot, you know, in terms of his compassion and then his, the way his gifting, you know, cascaded down such that he made a difference to the lives of a lot of people who were underprivileged. Everybody had a job to do in his um, organization. So initially, because I was was Femi's friend, I had a special status also, whereby not only was I a musician in the band, I was also an adopted son, which meant I was getting paid as a musician. That was one salary. Then I was an adopted son living in-house. So I was getting a weekly allowance as an adopted son. Then every once in a while, he'll call me and say, man, look at your clothes, man. Hey, yeah. he just, he'll just dip his hand into a bag and stuff some money in my hands. He said, man, go, go douche yourself up, man. You, these your outfits are out, out of style, man. Your, your trousers are looking faded, blah, blah, blah. Just go to shop and go and sort yourself out and look good. <laughs> you know. And not only did he did it, he didn't do that just to me. There are lots of us in there. And you would, people who arrive at Fela's house, you know, they've been kicked out away from home. Maybe they've been, their parents have disowned them or their parents are trying to force them to do something which is beyond them. I don't know what, but when Fela, he said, okay, so what can you do? Um, okay. Okay, you can walk on my bar. I play four times a week. So you can start walking in the bars. Uh, one of the uh, bar staff team, or you can walk at my gate. Security, you can be one of the ticketing, you know, uh, the ticketing sales. Or if you are one of those strong, muscular, okay, you can walk as one of my security bodyguards when I'm walking into shrine. You walk in with me, stand by my door, make sure an unauthorized entry is not allowed. <laughs> allowed to my inner inner sanctum in the, in the in the shrine so everybody had a role in fella's house there was 24 hour djing you know music was on 24 hours if you didn't have any of that then you could be a dj you would do the you would dj in the house and you would dj at the shrine you know so everybody had a role somebody was good at ironing okay so you make sure you iron all my clothes make sure my clothes are speak and span Washing, ironing, you know. So everybody how big, how big was, was the actual crew then, Delhi? Like it sounds like there was there were like fifty, a hundred people every day. Yeah, I, I mean, when Fela went on tour, he went with seventy people. 
to that Berlin tour, such that by the end of the tour, there was no money left. <laughs> you had close to 150, 200 people living under Fela, and Fela was responsible for their daily meals, weekly salaries. I think they say, in psychology, I think they say you can only actually possibly spend time with a hundred uh, at once or be friends with a hundred at once but it sounds like it was just constant there's a constant amount of people just around him all the time yeah and then don't forget someone like me because um of who i was and the closeness of i had to his his son i had he gave me privileges also so whilst there i picked up the saxophone i learned the saxophone whilst there I could rehearse on a piano 24-7. I had access to being able to orchestrate, re-orchestrate some of his classics and experiment with the rest of the guys, you know. And then, because I was Femi's type party, when Femi wanted to rehearse, it was Femi and I getting together and getting some of Fella's musicians to try out some experiments. Mm-hmm his own compositions and all that. So that really made a lot of difference to our own musical growth. Having access to that environment, your musicality is highly stimulated in that sense, such that for me, I'd like to boast about the fact that my university was very unconventional, but it was in in the commune of Fela Nikola Kukuchi, his musical commune and his life commune. Because there was a commune of the music itself, then the commune of life in, in, in itself. And those two combined together has made me who I am today. And uh, thankfully, for the better, I would say. And you, you know, Afrobeats is 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 your, I mean, you've, the legacy kind of lives on in, in the, you know, your Afrobeats is your kind of genre, the, the, the genre that you play as well. And I wondered what what's important when it comes to an Afrobeats record? Like what's, what makes it different and unusual from, from something else? To be honest with you, I don't know. And I will not say anything authoritatively for any other person, but for me personally, my taste, as long as it makes me move, it, it, it touches my heart, you know, for me. The signature people want to look for is that Fellaresque dominating pulse somewhere. There has to be something in there that makes you unable to sit still unable to not tap your feet and unable to not nod your head for example and it it has to last 48 minutes too it doesn't even necessarily (laughs) have to no No, i I mean fella fella love to say that look back tchaikovsky and all those classical composers they did music that lasted forever because there's first movement second movement third movement and he goes on the same with, with Afrobeats. There's the beginning stage, there's the middle stage, then there's the anticlimax stage, then the climax stage, then the descent from, you know. But it depends as the creator and the composer, you're not restricted. Your imagination should decide. So however you imagine it in your head, 
you can create it or you can play it, you can perform it, you can mold it to fit whatever you want to, you know. In the early days, when I used to do A, A, B, A, A, B, A, or A, B, C, A. I don't know if you're aware of those kind of terms. So those terms, I'll give you a classic example. Black man's cry. A section. One, two, three. Ha! That's it. So, someone who never heard that early track and only heard maybe colonial mentality, your eyes. And it stays like that from the beginning of the song to the end. The bass player does not move from that. The guitars doesn't move from that. But when the horns come in, you can hear they sectionalized it. There's an A. The horn mm -hmm. section for colonial mentality over that static line, static for want of a better word, or just that groove based then this is where it gets interesting because for now we now separate the brass and the reeds you just hear that's the reeds so the, all the saxophones are doing brass pop the pop the pot Meanwhile, the reeds are By the time those two play that thing, those lines together, you in the audience listen to them when they come in with that horn line and take it all the way. And then to the last one, then just the bass alone on its own for a couple of moments just to bring you back to sanity, back to life, back to reality. Then the music starts to take another direction. Maybe Fella decides to take a soprano sax solo or he says, hey, Dere, take a solo there. I'll tell you, you know, tell, let's break it down for Tony Allen to put a drum solo, you know. So for me, look, uh, it's in the 
in your imagination as a listener or as a writer or as a composer. But Fela style Afrobeat is not stagnant. It cannot be limited. It cannot be pigeonholed. It can only be whatever you can throw down as an accomplished composer, a writer, or someone who understands what the genre is. So and I wonder for, me, for you, I wonder for you, Delhi, as well, because you've you've mentioned this as well. I, you know, I remember a song where we performed growing up in. Uh, I think it was this this choir where it was called Carpe Diem, and and it was just everyone was singing in kind of complete synchronicity and you have to bring in so many people in some of these musical arrangements with some of the things that you've done how satisfying is that when it actually does all come together and it's just all everyone's on the same hymn sheet i tell you it's one of the most beautiful feelings of accomplishment accomplishment and then satisfaction i'm currently teaching in um fella where fella studied for quite a while, uh, Trinity College, uh, which is now called Trinity Laban. So I get, but I have a, a bunch of students. I take them through the paces and all that. From first day to final day with them, it's always a thrill to watch them grow, to watch their understanding grow in leaps and bounds. You know, because the young kids of nowadays are completely different from the kids of our times looking at the, the way technology was in our days compared to the way technology is now. And, you know, look, watching these kids take, kids take um, a new understanding to music they probably are hearing for the first time. I asked them, so have you heard of Felic? No. Most of them haven't heard, but they've heard of Afrobeats, the new phenomenon, which is, in my opinion, it's really Afropop, to be honest with you. But it's a hybrid of the influences that all these uh, young artists have, um, you know, had. So uh, watching these young students start to fledge their muscles at writing originals and being able to write an original and perform it at uh, maybe their students' final or students' recital, it gives me great joy seeing it come together. And for me, there's no better satisfaction than sharing the little knowledge you have with people, a group, a person, and then watching that person take it to the bridge. Uh, well, yeah, because you're, you, you're kind of like, as as you're an educator and an instructor as well, so it's, you, you yeah. know, how rewarding is that to you to hear your oh, pieces come together? Uh, I tell you, I've seen, I've seen stuff that brought tears to my eyes with joyful tears. That is, that look, you see, there's nothing quite like doing what you love to do and then tripping on it because you've done it good. Ah, I love it. So for me, I'm just, I'm happy. I'm making an impact. I'm contributing. I'm showing people things that they normally never will stumble upon because they are far from it. They, their paths would never ever come across Afrobeat with the lifestyle, with the social status they have. And then suddenly, not only are they discovering it, I'm actually showing them things that probably is just at the tip of their nose, but they will not re ordinarily discover it. You know, so I'm quite, I'm quite chuffed that I'm privileged to be able to do as much as I can. 
and it's yeah. it's you know London is is a kind of a always hailed a, a bit as a like a multicultural hub I guess what is it what is it like having all these different people from different backgrounds that that come together and, and play something that possibly is not <laughs> not what you'd imagined yeah and I, I mean for me it's you either it's either of two things you be a an observer or be a participator. And then having said that, that's one of the most important things, being, being, being a proactive, let's make something happen person, you know. So over the 26 years I've been in the UK, I've met loads of musicians, very, very humble, hardworking, uh, social conscious, political conscious, politically conscious musicians, you know, and we've walked the same circuit and we've come around and we've decided, look, we're all here in this cosmopolitan environment and we have the opportunity to make artistic statements together. We should try and do something. We should do something. Anyway, it culminated in us releasing an album. I don't know if you heard of Cuba for a bit. Loki Terra meets Dele Susimi. Loki Terra is a bunch of uh, my friends that I've known for years with a few members of my own Afrobeat orchestra as permanent members in that band. And then a lot of Cuban friends. So what we came up with is a hybrid, a mashup of Cuban rhythms, Afrobeat, and a bit of... Uh, a bit of Bangladeshi influence, because the other piano player, Kishan Khan, he's a Bangladeshi piano player who grew up in the UK. So he also has his roots. He loves his Afrobeat, but then he did a extensive studies of Cuban music in, 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 in Cuba. And then he does a lot of the Latin music scene in London. He's always there. So to be honest with you, we came together we wanted to do this. We said we would do it. It took us a long time to do it. But what, how we did it was we started sitting in at each other's gigs. I'll go to their gig when I'm up playing. If they have a gig on a day I'm up playing, they'll feature me. I'll come in, do one or two songs. When they're not playing, they'll come to my gig. They'll sit in on one or two songs. Before you knew it, we had enough to make an album. And we made an album. So there's always room for a lot of things. And then there are other collaborations too that have been um, processed and uh, are in the main mix and will be coming out shortly, but there is never an end. There is no end, like Tony Allen's latest album said, there is no end. There's never an end. There's always a beginning and there's always, a, it will always be the continuum. So the young artists coming up today are going to surprise a lot of people too, because they're looking deep into where they want to identify themselves with musically and then composition wise, people are looking to satisfy their craving to do something unique or something original or something that speaks beyond what has been spoken before. So watch out there because the they're young crop of uh, new musicians are here. They, if I want, I mean, for want of the better, better one, I'll just say they are onto something. 
And you, there's so many, uh, there's so much material out there. I guess, you know, you're talking about the music there, but it's also content in terms of like videos. If you wanted to see, you know, the evolution of Afro beats as a, as a, as a genre as well. But now we actually, we actually met Delhi at Sundance Film Festival in London. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that movie and how great that was to be uh, to be there. And uh, you know, because for for me personally, you know, like watching watching that, it, it it was it was really inspiring. Yes, that oh, I remember that that very very well. That was great. The way and you did a great I mean, oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, we were just chuffed to be able to make a difference so that people who watch the movie can then get an extra extra dose by coming to actually listen to a live Afrobeats performance, you know, in a beautiful theater too, because that was a nice place. The, uh, the, it was the Hollywood, uh, oh, what was it called again? Oh, I can't remember. I but it was a good hall. Yeah, it was a really good hall. And um, yeah, making of the Finding Fella film, that was some hard work. And then editing down to the final product that was released, that was another hard... There were so many scenes cut out that, you know, I would say they should do a new director's cut of it. Because there's still so much to say that didn't even get out. So I think there should be a part two, which they would call... Director's Cut 1, Director's Cut 2, Director's Cut 3. There's enough material to make it three, um, what you call, addendums. It's, hilar it's hilarious that um, yeah. <laughs> something to do with Fela Kuti and his long songs is now you're saying that there should be even more content for the, <laughs> for the movie as well. It should be extended. Maybe it could be yeah. three days long. Yeah, but, you know, in these kind of things, sometimes it's not about... It's always about the box. It's about, yeah. it's about you know, the cost uh, implications. I guess the cost implications to, cannot warrant or justify them doing that. But ideally, for the sake of art, if it was an artistic de decision, that's what should happen. It was it was a really good uh, movie, and I think uh, you know there was a lot of good questions that came out of it as well. That in that release that you did, you know, who else was up there? It was uh, it was Femi up there as well, wasn't it? Yeah, there was Femi, there was Tony Allen, there was there were quite a number of people who made some statements. I think there's this uh, ethnomusicologist from America who wrote the book on Fela, who wrote, who did the second autobiography of Fela, uh, Michael Ville. Yes, 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 that's right. I mean, you said there like about the venues and, and events. I mean, we've we've been kind of deprived a little bit in the last uh, eighteen months, and I just wondered, you know, how important is you know with the with music that you make in particular, how important is venues and events to musicians to because you you kind of need to you can get a certain amount from a record, but I mean, you need to almost be there to feel it as well, don't you? The energy. Well, for me, the way I grew up. It's essential you have a base. I mean, I may be wrong, but I would like a proper experimentation to be carried out before anybody takes what I've said, what I'm about to say, takes it the wrong way. When we were growing up as musicians, and 
Prelates Egypt 18. There was order and discipline. We had a show four times a week. And we had a rehearsal two times a week. It was a full-time job. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Tuesday. Monday was the only day off. Wednesday, we rehearse. Thursday, we rehearse. Friday, we start the cycle again. Now, what that does to you as a young musician, you can imagine I joined Fellas Band around, around July after my final paper in 19, I can't even remember when. Then I started playing weekly. By the time I played three months, my standard as a musician who's putting that much airtime air into my play had already shot up how many notches. You know, I was playing mainly Afrobeat, but I still had to do my personal practice. So I was play, spending that amount of time playing live in front of an audience. Then we were rehearsing every Wednesday and Thursday. And then done, Monday was the only day off, but I still had to put in my own personal practice of running my scales, running my finger strengthening exercises, doing my muscle memory exercises, all those kind of things, you know. And the fact that every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Tuesday, there was that interaction with an audience, there's a big difference. The energy you get off the audience and the energy you also feed back as a band to the audience, that communication is give and take, take and give. Give and take, you know, it's a bit of an exchange. There's a spiritual process involved. There's a emotional process involved. There are some other metaphysical spiritual uh, processes involved that may be acknowledged or unacknowledged, but I felt it. I know it. So which is why when I got here, I tried to look for a venue where I know that if you come to London and say, I heard Dennis Susim is based in London. Where does he play? Oh, he does this bi-monthly thing. He does it six times a year only. So you can catch him the last Saturday of January, March, June, September, you know, just give you my dates for the year. Because after a while, my dates in that venue became common knowledge. It's the last Saturday of January, February, March, January, March, May, July, September, and November. So in fact, this year will make it 13 years that I've been running an event in, in the UK. I'm going to try and mark it somehow. The only reason why we don't do it again is because there's sort of this kind of very hidden but anti-live anti music uh, attitude that has just crept in slowly but sternly. So most venues are not being given licenses to operate after midnight. You can't have a late session, live music session, unless it, it's difficult to do. But I haven't been able to do it. I mean, the venue I play called Jazz Cafe, they got complaints from the neighbors. I managed to get Jazz Cafe doing that, like, every three months. I'll do a late one where we start at 12 midnight and play from 12 midnight straight till 3 a.m. in the morning. And it, it worked, man. Oh, can you imagine that energy, that feed 
from us to the audience and then what they give back, the pleasure. The, so now we now were in lockdown for quite a while. No live music venue was open. Then suddenly they lifted the ban and I got two nights at Jazz Cafe. Oh my God. People were like, oh, people were, they found it hard to stay sat on their chairs where well, I set the record. You know, I set the standard. I said, look, Ladies and gentlemen, we have been given the permission to start performing in venues, but everybody has to be seated, blah, de, blah, de, blah, restricted numbers. So a, 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 a place like Jazz Cafe that used to have over a night, they could have up to 750 people. They were limited to 100 people. So you can imagine, no matter what, and they all have to be seated. And people and couldn't then, sit still. They couldn't sit still. You, ha you ha had the waiters going up to people saying, please, can you sit down? Because the music would be such that they would they'd be like, oh, no, I've got to get up for this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let me shake my what my mama gave me just a little bit for this one. So you see someone get up, shake it a little bit, then you see the way immediately the waitress is, or waiter is going, please, can you sit down, you know? It's hard. It's hard to dance on a on a chair. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we we're, we're coming to the uh, the end of the episode now, and I just kind of wanted to ask you one final question. I guess is, you know, you've been in the industry for so long, and, and I mean, you've started with uh, with a pretty big um, a big person to, to 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 get you into the industry as well. And I, I wondered if if someone who wants to get into Afrobeats came up to you, and I'm sure you have students asking you as well, is, you know, what would what would you what would you say of, of how to start and uh, to, to get into Afrobeats? Go and refresh your listening first. Go and listen to what's been done before. Are you sure? I'll be like, are you sure? Then I'll ask through the question, why? Why Afrobeats? Why? So, and then I'll then be able to answer based on the question back. But I'll all I would do is encourage. I say, well, whatever within my own capacity, advice I can offer, I would, you know, ask me questions, ask me my experiences, I'll, I'll gladly share, but you need to understand why you're doing it. Are you doing it because you think you're going to make money or are you doing it because of the love of it? And, and I'm, I'm assuming I, the second one is the most important. That's right. You have to do it for the love of it, because that's it for me, for the love of it. I'm a, in fact, once I'm performing with my team, it could be the quartet, it could be the quintet, it could be the sextet, because I'm one of those few people who have dared to say that, look, you don't really need big band. The big band sound of Afrobeat, it's there. We know there's a big band sound, but do you know that there's also a a trio sound, there's a quartet sound, there's a quintet sound. It depends on your imagination. If you do not limit your imagination, then there are things you can do. But you got to give it a go. If you don't give it a go, don't don't say it's not possible. And don't shy away from it. Dilly, Shosimi, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with us today and um, really hope everything gets back up and running and uh, we can see those hips shaking on the dance floor uh, soon. Yes, I do hope so too. And I do hope we have a chance to do a, 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 a second part because this is just, we just scratched the surface. Now we can delve into the deeper aspects. We can talk about 
more things the next time around. And hopefully by then, I should be, I should have come to Melbourne then. Yeah, yeah, yes, it's, it's waiting for you. It's waiting for you, Delhi. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast produced by Podlike. We make great podcasts even better. Find us at podlike.online.